Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox. I'm the Compliance Evangelist, and I'd like to welcome you to This Week in FCPA, episode 122 for the week ending September 28th, 2018, the Kavanaugh, Rosenstein, and 100 Wins edition. But first, a word from our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors. Founded in 2004, Affiliated Monitors provides professional, independent integrity monitoring and ethics and compliance assessments nationally and internationally and across almost all industries. With its knowledge of effective ethics and compliance programs and cultures, Affiliated Monitors is respected for its work as the corporate monitor on matters ranging from multinational corporations to small and mid-sized companies and even individuals. Having served in over 700 monitorships, no one has more experience as an independent monitor than the team at Affiliated Monitors. For more information on how an independent monitor can help improve your company's compliance and ethics programs, visit our sponsor, Affiliated Monitors, at www.affiliatedmonitors.com. Some of the stories Jay and I take a look at this week include Petrobras coming in with a $1.78 billion FCPA settlement, a speech by Deputy Attorney General Matthew Miner, settlement of a former Chilean mining official on FCPA charges. We take a look at Jonathan Marks' article on what Freud has to do with fraud. FIFA's back in the news regarding corruption. Elon Musk was sued by the Securities and Exchange Commission and may be stripped of the right to run a public company. Another US non-U.S. citizen receives a whistleblower award. We ask the question, what is a remediation management office? And conclude by taking a look at a great article by Allison Taylor about what ethics and compliance means to corporations in 2018. It's certainly more than clearing red flags and performing due diligence. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to episode 122 of This Week in FCPA for the week ending September 27th, excuse me, September 28th, 2018, the Kavanaugh, Rosenstein, and 100 Win Edition. As always, I'm joined by my colleague, good friend, and cohort, Mr. Monitors himself, Jay Rosen. Jay, welcome. Hey, Tom. <clears throat> Greetings from Los Angeles. It's been a heck of a week, hasn't it? Yes, Jay. Uh, as the administration has gone bonkers over the Kavanaugh nomination, and of course, the earlier this week, and it seems like three years ago, Rod Rosenstein, he's in, nope, he's out, nope, he's in drama. Uh, and uh, our two favorite baseball teams are already having 100-plus wins. Um we actually had a pretty big week in the world of ethics and compliance, so let's just jump right into it. What uh, was number one on your list? All right, and first of all, just so there's no confusion, I want to let you know, Tom, that this podcast is being recorded, so if there's ever anything that's in dispute that we've said, we're both aware that we're being recorded right now as we speak. Yes, yes. Uh, so anyhow, number one on the list is the name that – we had in the news probably two, three years ago that was um, dominating uh, FCPA news. Uh, Petrobras has reached a $1.78 billion, that's with the B FCPA resolution. And uh, Petrobras re- entered into a, a non-prosecution agreement with the Department of Justice that included a criminal penalty of $853 million. Under the NPA, Petrobras will pay 10% or $85.3 million of the criminal penalty to the DOJ and another 10% to the SEC. 
Petrobras will pay the remaining 80%, 682.5 million, to the Ministerio Público Federal in Brazil. So uh, in the SEC enforcement action, Petrobras agreed to disgorge 933.5 million. So staggering numbers, um, but it really brings to close uh, Operation Car Wash and I think really uh, ties things up. Um, we're going to link to uh, show notes from the FCPA blog. And then um, we also had some writings from Aruna Viswanatha, Jeffrey Lewis, and Sam Rubenfeld. Did they have a, uh, any specific take on their thing, Tom? Well, just a couple of things I'd like to add, Jay. First of all, Petrobras uh, is not required to have a monitor. And I think this is a pretty stunning development, uh, particularly considering uh, how corrupt Petrobras was. Uh, it really speaks to a couple of things, I think. One, the organizational desire to change and to self-correct and to work towards that great remediation that they had to go through, although it is an ongoing remediation. Uh, the second thing is it really speaks to the credibility Petrobras was able to engender with the Department of Justice, particularly uh, considering that it was the bribery and corruption was really at the highest levels of the organization. Uh, senior management, the board, and that the company really completely cleaned house. So to not require a monitor shows that the Department of Justice has a pretty good sense that you will follow the agreements that you have made, in this case, in a, a non-prosecution agreement with the Department of Justice and in a, a cease and desist order with the Securities and the Exchange Commission. So I think I would say we have to give Petrobras some kudos uh, for that. I don't think many people would have expected them to come without uh, come out of this at the end of the day without a monitor. Second of all, in a really interesting follow up post today, uh, Dick Casson um, put uh, Petrobras in the top ten of FCPA cases. Now. Uh, top 10 of FCPA cases is separate and apart from top international anti-corruption enforcement actions. So I have a list of the top 10. This would have come in. This does come in number three on the top international list. But Dick puts it in the uh, FCPA settlement and he, and he lays out his logic. And it, he does acknowledge that the resolution could be valued in other ways. Nevertheless, uh, he, he gives a, a rational uh, basis for putting Petrobras squarely in the FCPA settlement, and it comes down to essentially that the fines and penalties of $1.78 billion, um, and even with a billion not being what it used to be worth, it's still a lot of greenbacks, um, that that was a, a part of the FCPA resolution. And this is an FCPA enforcement action where the Department of Justice um, – Ha, uh, noted that some 80% of the total fine and penalty was being paid to the Brazilian prosecutors or the Brazilian, uh, Brazilian government. So um, there was a legal duty and is a legal duty on Petrobras to pay. And th simply because part of that is paid to the uh, Brazilian government, in Dick Casson's opinion, that that does not take away from this as being an FCPA resolution. So um, I thought that was a, a, a really interesting analysis for him to take. Um, the um, uh, never, Even if you don't accept that this is a total FCPA case, it's certainly a, a total amount for uh, fraud and uh, corruption, excuse me, 
bribery and corruption. So uh, kudos to Petrobras for uh, uh, getting this result. A non-prosecution agreement means there's no uh, criminal sanction against Petrobras, which Petrobras has tooted its horn about, and I believe that's you know, something they could do. Uh, we should also note, Jay, that Petrobras had previously paid $2.9 billion uh, to settle a shareholder derivative action uh, for the uh, actions of the U.S. Uh, companies, the U- Petrobras USA, uh, all related to this. So uh, really a massive case, Whether whatever bucket you put it in, it's one that's going to be sliced and diced. I'm going to be blogging about it several days next week, and uh, I think it's going to be studied uh, for many years to come, Jay. And it looks like uh, Siemens is moving down the list now. They're at number three. So uh, we haven't seen any big movement up in the top five for a while. Well, actually, uh, certainly in the um, in the um, domestic list, the FCPA list. But remember, in 2017, we had Telia at 965 million. But in the international list, uh, really, it's uh, the top three are now from. 2017 uh, or late 2016, 2017, and now 2018. So, um, you know, it's not the real money that billions were when you were, uh, you know, blowing and going, Jay, but uh, we'll count it as a big one uh, even in 2018. So uh, next up, Tom, we have uh, remarks from uh, Deputy Assistant Attorney General Matt Miner that he made at the fifth annual GIR New York Live event. What did uh, Mr. Miner have to say? Well, Jay, um, as we enter the kind of fall conference season, we will see more and more uh, Department of Justice officials out on the speaker circuit. And they'll be, uh, in some some cases, giving a retrospective, which is part of what Matthew Miner uh, did, looking back over the year in FCPA enforcement, FCPA issues, uh, he uh, made the speech the same day Petrobras was announced, so it was clearly something that uh, he talked about. He, he indicated the 25% discount given to Petrobras because of their uh, extraordinary cooperation. That, of course, is separate and apart from the uh, lack of monitorship that I uh, talked about uh, uh, in our uh, segment number one. But also he talked about the FCPA corporate enforcement policy uh, enacted in late November 2017, and in this year's editions of the anti-piling-on policy, which we clearly saw in the Petrobras settlement, how it applies internationally, and the M&A part, uh, which was to write in that the uh, mergers, there was now a uh, permanent uh, and um, uh, safe harbor reflected in the U.S., uh, Senate's uh, U.S. Attorney's Manual. He also gave a shout out to our friend Dan Kahn, who heads the FCPA unit, for uh, his leading that unit through some of the biggest settlements over the past uh, literally uh, several years, but certainly within the past 18 months. And also he, em- he re-emphasized a point that he has talked about several times, which is his view of the department is in with partnership with corporations to fight the international scourge of bribery, corruption, leading to terrorism. And he wants corporations to help in that fight. Uh, He believes the Department of Justice has incentivized corporations to uh, come forward and report uh, instances of bribery and corruption through the new FCPA corporate enforcement policy. We will probably hear some more about this, but um, that's uh, a change that has been coming 
And now we see the department really articulating the position uh, formally that they view corporations as partners, not necessarily adversaries. You can certainly be an adversary uh, if you engage in criminal conduct, but if you come forward, self, self-disclose self and meet the other requirements under the FCPA corporate enforcement policy, I think you'll be treated much more leniently going forward. So it's um, it's it's interesting to hear that recap and where we've been for the last 16 months. And if you remember that podcast and the ebook we did with uh, Matt and with uh, Mike Volkov and taking a look at, you know, how seriously is the administration going to take enforcement? Uh, it seems like uh, things have been moving right along. Indeed. Indeed. So, so now we go back again to um, FCPA blog. And we're talking about uh, SQM, uh, Chile-based chemical mining company. And on Tuesday, the former CEO, uh, Patricio Contes Gonzalez, agreed to pay $125,000 to resolve civil charges that he violated the FCPA uh, Act. And this was in addition to the, or this was actually due to making nearly $15 million in improper payments to Chilean political figures and others connected to them. Last year, SQM paid $30 million to settle uh, and uh, civil and criminal FCPA charges. The company paid a criminal penalty to the DOJ of $15.5 million, and the SEC settled with the CEO Monday through an administrative order. So um, this, again, has been one that we've been following for the past few years. Uh, the bribery actually went back from 1990 to 2015, and starting in 2008, uh, SQM paid nearly $15 million to these politicians. So, uh, again, we're seeing uh, things coming to us um, out of South America and in mining and materials, which is always an area that is uh, rife with uh, potential FCPA shortfalls. So next, we had a uh, part two of a two-part article, Jay, by our good friend, Jonathan Marks. Jonathan writes, uh, posts in numerous places, but he has his own site, uh, boardandfraud.com. And in it, he has part two of a two-part posting entitled, Putting Freud in Fraud. In part one, he looked at true Freudianisms in the behavioral elements of fraud, and in this part two, he turns to, he calls it environmental elements. I would may, might have called it structural elements. Nevertheless, he does incorporate some Freudian concepts in there uh, in terms of taking a look at weak tone at the top and conduct, perhaps more structural, but also vulnerable cultures, loose links between ethics and compliance uh, going forward. As always, it's uh, jam-packed with links it's a very great resource for you, uh, as everything Jonathan posts, so we commend you uh, to it. Uh, we also have more news about FIFA, Jay. What did we have uh, from our friends at the most uh, corrupt national, international soccer organization around? Well, <clears throat> this comes to us from Law 360, and it says the ex-soccer boss wants a $50 million restitution request tossed. And uh, this is basically uh, in a memorandum filed on Friday, Juan Angel Naput, the former head of the South American Football Confederation, known as CONMEBOL, argued that the Mandatory Victims Resolution Restoration Act only allows for restitution for participation in a government investigation. However, CONMEBOL, FIFA, and the Confederation 
of North and Central America and Caribbean Football Association, known as CONCACAF, performed internal investigations. Uh, Naput was convicted in December of racketeering and other charges related to schemes where sports marketing companies funneled monies, hundreds of millions of dollars into bribes. So this is, again, uh, I guess, I don't know if you would call it a residual action in uh, the FIFA matter, but... uh, this one is a gift that still keeps on giving. Um, Tom, anything uh, particular you want to address in this one? You know, Jay, it's just a continuation of the FIFA scandal, which broke initially in 2015. Um, the um, follow-on cases, we still may have uh, some additional work, or the Department of Justice may have some additional work to do. FIFA itself has uh, decided transparency is not going to be something Part of its uh, future and is becoming much more opaque again, so that doesn't bode well. But uh, good to see or clear to see the Department of Justice uh, still moving forward uh, on residual cases uh, under the FIFA corruption scandal. So now we have uh, always a very interesting uh, gentleman in the business and the press world. Um, SEC sues Tesla's Elon Musk over fraud and a move that could oust him from his firm. What did Mr. Musk say, and why is it such a problem? So, Jay, um, you have acknowledged many times, and as we are recording this, you will acknowledge yet again that you're a recovering screenwriter. And probably if you made up a character like this, no one would believe it. Uh, Once again, proving that not only is truth much stranger than fiction, but you can't write fiction around something like this because fiction has to be reality-based. And I don't know how you can say anything Elon Musk does is reality-based, whether it's going on and puffing on a smoke of uh, questionable origin on a podcast or uh, sleeping on the uh, floor of his assembly line. But the thing uh, that went on here, uh, to recap, he uh, sent out a, a tweet, not a press release, um, and he was taking the, taking the company public, excuse me, private, he had a valuation mine of $420 a share and that uh, he had funding lined up. Well, it turned out that that last part was not true, or at least as alleged by the SEC, that he did not have funding lined up. I was uh, somewhat stunned this morning, Jay, to read that uh, the way he determined the $420 amount was largely based on wisdom from his girlfriend that told him that was a significant number in the marijuana industry. So uh, if you recall, the CEO of Wells Fargo um, wanted customers to purchase eight uh, loan products or bank products because eight is great. Well, here we have um, a share price based upon a valuation largely based on Mary Jane and her followers. So um, if you'd written that in a screenplay, you probably would have been laughed out. But it gets even more bizarre, Jay, because – It turned out that yesterday when the SEC filed its action uh, in the afternoon, early in the morning, they had actually drafted a settlement with Musk and both parties had agreed to the settlement. No word what that settlement was, but that uh, late morning, uh, Musk's lawyers called the SEC to say, whoops, no settlement. And so the SEC sued them, sued Musk. Uh, Let me emphasize that uh, that point. Uh, The SEC has not sued Tesla. They have sued Elon Musk personally uh, for his actions. And uh, 
Why you would pull out of an agreed settlement at the last minute uh, is only known to probably not even his lawyers, but to Mr. Musk. And uh, but by doing so, he has put himself in in really uh, a very dangerous position because if he goes to trial and if he loses, um, the judge can levy the sanction of banning him from public company uh, uh, work and being a senior executive or on the board of a public company. And that's his company's republic. Now, I suppose Mary Jane and her $420 a share valuation could still be resurrected if he could find the funding for it and take the company private, and he wouldn't have to worry about the SEC. But uh, that's a pretty big risk, particularly when you seem to have settled everything else. We don't know the reason. Nevertheless, uh, he's done it. So um, I'm... uh, we're going to have to follow this one. Pretty interesting. I'm going to talk to uh, uh, Amy next week on this, and uh, we're going to see where it all might shake out. Well, he was in the state of California where uh, Mary Jane is legalized, so maybe uh, maybe that $420 uh, share price is you know, you know actually pretty valid. Who knows? Who knows? So anyhow, uh, as of late, whistleblowers have uh, certainly been in the news. They've been in uh, the SEC's crosshairs, and they've been trying to pass legislations to limit the amount of awards whistleblowers. And this week, uh, the SEC awarded an overseas whistleblower $4 million for, quote, extensive assistance, unquote, resulting in a successful action, the agency said on Monday. Uh, the chief of the SEC's whistleblowers, uh, Jane Norberg, said whistleblowers, whether they're located in the United States or abroad, provide a valuable service to investors and help us stop wrongdoing. In Monday's order, the SEC said the outcome of the action was a direct result of the whistleblower's tip. And since 2012, the SEC has awarded over $326 million to 59 individuals. So, um, you know, whistleblowing is uh, something that we talked about earlier this morning when we did our podcast with um, Matt and Mike when, when we wanted to uh, have a, a whistleblower remain anonymous, which is really one of the foundations of that. And uh, you can see what happens when that anonymity is broken. Uh, next up, Tom, we've got something about uh, addressing regulatory compliance issues with an RMO. Can you tell us what that is? Sure. Uh, Jay, this article comes to us from Maurice Gilbert's site, Corporate Compliance Insights. It um, is a really interesting article by two gentlemen I am not aware of, Steve Hall and Sidney Rickleman. And they talk about this concept, RMO, which is a remediation management office. Now, they talk about it in the context of a regulated industry, and uh, many of our listeners are not in regulated industries, although I think we have a dedicated fan base there. And uh, RMO is a program management office, which is set up to deal with a list of specific noncompliance issues that may have been identified in an audit. And uh, certainly um, in a regulated company, uh, I can see this kind of uh, structure existing, but um, I thought about it in the context of a of a regular commercial industry, many of, of affiliated monitors, clients, my clients as well, Jay, 
and it, it really seemed to speak to uh, uh, many of the things that we uh, look at in the regulated side of things are pretty good ideas and more mature than in commercial operations. So they uh, suggest that uh, there are five elements, elements to look for, understand the need of the environment for remediation, corporate governance and ownership of the remediation, the need for speed of your remediation, transparency in your remediation, and then minimal ex- impact to business. And I think that there's really a lot for the compliance professional to have in here. When you have an audit, how are you going to address its findings? Uh, typically, if you're a CCO, if either a small shop or a solo CCO, you're going to have to take those on on a risk-based uh, priority. But with the uh, RMO, the uh, Remediation Management Office, even if it's an ad hoc uh, committee, uh, not uh, an office. I think it really gives you a way to think through your remediation and do it much more quickly and much more efficiently. So uh, we've, of course, cited to it, and I commend everyone to read it because you might get some good ideas out of it. Great. And the last thing for us to wrap up with is um, there was an interview with uh, Allison Taylor in um, the FCPA blog, and she talks about today compliance is more than due diligence and red flags. Uh, This is uh, information from a survey that they recently did called the State of Sustainable Business. And uh, were there any other other takeaways you had from that one, Tom? Well, Jay, um, really it confirms, I think, one of the things that certainly I've been writing about and, and frankly, Affiliated Monitors has been talking about which our ethics and cultural values are becoming uh, more and more critical. And it's uh, compliance is, is not due diligence. It's not dealing with red flags. Uh, it is actually being much more proactive. It's much about having your values inculcated into the culture of your organization so that you engage in ethical, employees engage in ethical behavior. She pointed to the Me Too movement, uh, the uh, turning away of, uh, non-disclosure clauses and those types of harassment cases. But really, uh, she talked about, uh, and the report found that uh, companies want to have and employees want to have ethics and integrity as a part of their culture. And I know that's something that uh, Affiliated Monitors talks about, thinks about, writes about, and works on quite a bit. And so it was really interesting to see we're starting to see many more of these surveys of member organizations, whether uh, uh, nonprofits such as BSR that Allison works for or for-profit uh, in other places talk about uh, the need for uh, moving really beyond the, the paper program and into an ethical culture and uh, ethical values-based organization. So uh, nice um, article by Allison. And once again, we uh, link to it and we commend, uh, commend it to everyone to take a look at. So uh, that kind of wraps up the news for the week. Uh, why don't you let us know uh, where you were this past week and what's coming up besides the uh, uh, MLB playoffs? So we've got uh, this week, Jay, I was actually in, uh, in your neck of the woods in Boston for some very warm, humid weather and some cool weather. Uh, putting on a compliance masterclass uh, hosted by uh, Affiliated Monitors, amazingly enough. So uh, I was at the Affiliated Monitors office in uh, Boston. We had a very good dynamic crowd, lots of uh, different uh, folks there that uh, we were able to work through a couple of days of compliance masterclass. Uh, Next week, uh, I guess actually two weeks, 
from the date of this podcast and when it will be posted, I will be at Converge 18, the conference hosted by Conversant, be in Denver from October uh, 8th through 11th. I hope you can join me for the event. Uh, your colleague, Eric Feldman, will be there speaking. Uh, our colleague, Mike Volkoff, will be there speaking. So um, uh, listeners to this podcast can receive up to a or receive a 50% discount. And I've uh, given the information on the discount code and the link to the registration and information uh, on our show notes. So uh, it's, it's really going to be a top-notch conference. It's going to be one of the best around. If uh uh, if you are interested at all, uh, please sign up for it. I can't emphasize uh, that enough. And that gets us, Jay, to what we really want to talk about, which is the baseball playoffs. Uh, the uh, Major League Baseball's best record this year w- has gone and will go t- to the Boston Red Sox, who are currently at 106 wins, I think, with three games left. The Houston Astros, uh, number two are at 100 wins with three games left, uh, providing we're not rained out again in uh, Baltimore tonight or over the weekend. So a little wiggle room for the Astros. I think our best season ever was uh, 99 when we had 103 wins. Unfortunately, we got knocked out of the playoffs in the first round. Uh, Over on the uh, National League side, Jay, we've got a couple of great series to end the uh, year. St. Louis is in Chicago battling for, in uh, the case of, the Cubs are battling for the division lead or to, to win the division. And for the Cards, they're battling to hold the wild card spot. Over in the West, we've got uh, the Dodgers who are battling for the one playoff spot in the NL West, uh, duking it out in San Francisco with, with their top rival, the uh, San Francisco Giants. So uh, we are going to have some uh, great baseball this weekend, Jay, and I hope it's going to lead into a great uh, playoff as well. Yeah, so uh, kudos to the schedule makers and um, wanted to send a, a shout out uh, to somebody who's a podcast listener. You said earlier that we do have some uh, fans in the regulated industry and our good friend Samantha Kellen from Duke Energy was uh, selected to be part of the SCCE, the Society of Corporate Compliance and Ethics Board of Directors. So it's uh, just a real testament how somebody can come in and uh, really get involved and make a difference. Uh, Samantha is very enthusiastic, and we uh, would like to congratulate her as long as all, uh, uh, as well as all the other uh, people who are joining uh, the board for the SCCE. So we will see all of you. I think it's less than three weeks away in Las Vegas uh, for the Compliance and Ethics Institute. So we're looking forward to that. And uh, baseball, football, uh, Senate uh, testimony, we've got it all this week. So uh, for the week ending September 28th, 2018, the Kavanaugh, Rosenstein, and 100-plus win editions on behalf of myself, Jay Rosen, Mr. Monitor, and Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, we'd like to thank you for listening and hope you have a wonderful weekend. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to episode 122, and I hope you will join Jay and I next week where we have another episode of This Week in FCPA. I'm pleased to announce that the listeners to this podcast can receive up to a 50% discount to Converge 18 in Denver, and I link to the event, the registration, and agenda, and I give the discount code all in the show notes. It's going to be a great event, so I hope you can join us at Converge 18. 
Thanks again for joining us, and I hope you will listen again next week. This Week in FCPA is a part of the Compliance Podcast Network. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.